For a lot of languages, there's a certain amount of lag time when a new version of a language will ship before they actually adopt it. Java is a great case study of this where you still have a lot of people on Java 8 or Java 11. With Go, it was surprisingly fast. So much so that the first year, I think we asked about six-month time chunks. And almost everybody said that they upgrade to the latest release of Go for production uses within the first six months. So the next iteration of the survey, we actually broke that chunk down even more granularly to try to get a sense of like, okay, do people just try to upgrade basically right away? And that seems to be the case. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Lino. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at lino.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Teleport. Teleport lets engineers operate as if all cloud computing resources they have access to are in the same room with them. SSO allows discovery and instant access to all layers of your tech stack behind NAT, across clouds, data centers, or on the edge. I have Ev Contavoy here with me, co-founder and CEO of Teleport. Ev, help me understand industry best practices and how Teleport Access Plane gives engineers unified access in the most secure way possible. So the industry best practice for remote access means that the access needs to be identity-based, which means that you're logging in as yourself, you're not sharing credentials from anybody. And the best way to implement this is uh, certificates. It also means that you need to have unified audit for all the different actions. With all these difficulties that you would experience configuring everything you have, every server, every cluster, with certificate-based authentication and authorization, that's the state of the world today. You have to do it. But if you are using Teleport, that creates a single end point. It's a multi-protocol proxy that natively speaks all of these different protocols that you're using. It makes you to go through SSO single sign-on, and then it transparently allows you to receive certificates for all of your cloud resources. And the beauty of certificates is that they have your identity encoded, and they also expire. So when the day is over, you go home, the, your access is automatically revoked. And that's what Teleport allows you to do. So it allows engineers to enjoy the superpowers of accessing all of cloud computing resources as if they were in the same room with them. That's why it's called Teleport. And at the same time, when the day is over, the access is automatically revoked. That's the beauty of Teleport. All right, you can try Teleport today in the cloud, self-hosted or open source. Head to goteleport.com to learn more and get started. Again, goteleport.com. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Subscribe if you're new at gotime.fm and follow the show on Twitter for the unpop polls, notifications of when we go live, and other solid tweets like interesting repos from your fellow gophers. We are at gotime.fm. All right, that's all for me. Here we go. Welcome to Go Time. I'm your host, Chris Brando, and today we will be talking about the Go Annual Developer Survey. And joining us today, we have Todd Kaliza. How are you today, Todd? Doing great. How are you doing, Chris? Doing well. To give you all some background on Todd, 
Todd joined the Go team in 2018 as their first user experience researcher, working towards more systematic processes for collecting and understanding developer feedback. He's also interested in understanding how the UX discipline can support open source development more generally. Before joining Google, he worked on developer tooling at Microsoft and studied computer science and human-computer interaction at Oregon State University. I'm super glad to have you here, Todd. And joining me as well is Alice Merrick. How are you today, Alice? I'm amazing. How are you? I'm doing great. And <laughs> Alice joined the Go team in 2019 after working on Garrett Code Review and Google internal tooling. Her background in cognitive science and human computer inter- in, in human computer interaction. I'm having a lot of trouble saying that today. <laughs> She's interested in the benefits of diversity and inclusiveness in software development and works on the accessibility of developer tools in addition to her work with the Go team. And joining me as well is my wonderful co-host, Natalie, who needs no interruption. How are you today, Natalie? I'm doing great. That's a very smooth way of not pronouncing my last name. Kudos to you, Chris. I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I, I've pronounced it before, but, you know. It's true. You did. And uh, I just wanted to celebrate that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So yeah, today we're talking about the Go Developer Survey. Uh, And for those of you out there who don't know, this is an annual survey that the Go team puts out to collect information about how everybody out there is using Go. So uh, that's my first question to either you, Todd or Alice. How did the, the Go survey get started? Well, I'll answer this because I got a little bit more context today because I talked to somebody who who actually started it and its current incarnation of it anyway. So the survey is old. It predates both of Todd and my tenure on the team. And there actually was, I found when, while I was posting an announcement for the current, the current survey, I actually found something that dated from like 2011, something so, so old that this, the current survey has no relation to this at all, but like it was sort of the first survey and it was uh, started by the Andrew Gerund, if is that his name, or ADG, I think was his handle, who was just looking for information about the Go community, asking people, hey, like, who are you? Where would you like to go to a conference? That kind of thing. And then uh, I think for about five years, I don't think there were any. Maybe there were some other community-driven things. And then I think it was in 2016, there was a notable one from the community. I think um, the name was Ed Muller, is that a familiar name, who did a survey. And not long after that, Steve Francia uh, joined Google and, you know, realized, hey, we're missing some information here. Like it would be useful for us to, to do some data collection from the community. And the original survey, quite interestingly, um, was two different surveys. They used to do an internal survey and an external survey. So that's like for people who are using Go at Google and people who are using Go outside of Google. And they did that for a couple of years. And you know they were surprised at how different developers were outside of Google and realizing that this is where more most of our users are, we should really kind of pivot and focus on these external developers. And so now we don't even run an internal version of the survey. It's just, we just focus on the external community. But that's, yeah, that's kind of how it evolved until eventually it got UXR support. And so now Todd and I kind of run the show. 
<laughs> All right. Awesome. That's quite the history there. You know, I've, yeah. I've only taken the the survey for the last couple of years and I thought I just missed it in years before, but it sounds like it kind of like wasn't even what it is in its current incarnation back then. Yeah. Yeah. It's still very new. I think like kind of, you know, the, it got official, I think in like 2016 or so, and it didn't get UXR support, I think until like what, 2018 or 20, the 2019 survey, maybe? The 2019 survey is really when that started. Yeah. Uh, I came on as we were doing the analysis of the 2018 survey data, which was a really great place to kind of join the team because your your first experience is essentially learning all of the feedback that the community has all in one giant brain dump. So that was really cool. And then in 2019 is when we started to sort of evolve the survey uh, in line with some more some UX best practices, essentially. Well, I have a follow-up question to that. And uh, since we've had it in this kind of official UXR capacity, how has the survey kind of changed or grown over the last couple of years? I mean, well, the, I mean, the first big change was the focusing on the external, which was, I think, early, very early on. But then Todd took it over. So he kind of, he knows more of that, what that was like in the in the changing hands to a dedicated researcher. This would be applicable to like the 2019 survey. We started to make some changes in the way that questions, for the most part, not the way that they were worded. We wanted to kind of preserve as much as we could for year over year comparisons. But we had started to realize that some of the ways that we were analyzing the survey were based on overall number of respondents to it, which was artificially deflating all of the uh, the metrics that we were collecting, essentially. So to give you a more concrete example there, a large number of people drop off as they're taking the survey. And so a question near the end may only have 60% as many responses as questions earlier on in the survey. And so if we were using the same denominator, questions at the end would look a lot worse simply for the fact that they came at the end of the survey. So that was one change we made in, in terms of how we were analyzing that data. One of the things that stood out to me immediately the first time I was, was starting to look at the survey was this realization that for all of the choice, the lists of choices that were presented in like an alphabetical order, you could see that the Basically, the, the responses people gave also lined up in alphabetical order, which told us we needed to randomize the order of those choices, uh, wherever it made sense, at least, in order to prevent that sort of bias. So the first year was really just trying to uh, kind of put more best practices in place and reduce any bias that we were seeing in the survey, while also trying to preserve as much of the year-over-year data as we could and make sure that we could kind of continue to learn from it over time. After that, I handed off to Alice the following year, who made some great changes, and I'll I'll let her talk to those. Yeah, then the next year it was a it was a big change. So I think the number of questions on the survey effectively doubled the year that I took over the survey, and it was we had this idea of well we have like ten thousand respondents or so, we don't actually need ten thousand respondents to be confident in some of these multiple choice questions, you only need a fraction of that. And so, well, what if we only showed this question to half of people or 40% of people or something, we could ask a lot more questions and get a lot more, you know, we could get a lot more bang for our buck here. And it wouldn't make the survey longer for any one person. We would just kind of randomly select what blocks they saw. And so we would only we had, you know, the questions organized into blocks. The number of questions basically doubled. It, it was 
really and just kind of an exercise in finding like what is how many how many questions can one uh, can one re- researcher reasonably analyze in you know a given amount of time and i think we found it like we definitely asked a lot of a lot of questions we got a lot of data and that was a you know a huge format change for us just with the amount of things that we could ask and we asked just if you could think of it we basically you know asked that question without too much, you know, worrying about, is this going to be, you know, how are we going to use this? Or it was kind of like, well, we want to know this, you know, we want to know this. And then of course this year is, you know, my second year doing it. I learned a thing or two. You definitely want to have a little bit more focus in the kinds of questions that, you know, that we're asking and want to make sure we're making the most use out of a researcher's time in terms of analysis. So we've sort of trimmed it down a little bit this year. Okay, nice, nice. So I'm kind of wondering about the past couple of years, there's all this new information that we've gotten or you've gotten out of the survey. What are some surprising things that you found in the past couple of years or things that, you know, maybe the Go team was like, we think it's this way, but actually it's like completely different if there are any of those things? Yeah, I can talk about like kind of in the early survey, there were like some real big shockers like early on. Apparently, this is, you know, coming from Steve, who who ran those first couple of early surveys about just the differences between using Go at Google and using Go outside of Google. And just like the thing, you know, it was super surprising for them to see so many people using Go for CLIs. That was not what they um, had expected. And so many people using Go for for web development, they hadn't expected that either. They were mostly Emacs users. They thought everybody, you know, they, they didn't understand why nobody else was, you know, so gung-ho about Emacs. Why was everybody else using Vim or, you know, or VS Code or, or whatever. There were some of those like really big surprises, like in terms of just the difference between Go at Google and outside of it. But I think Todd can speak more to some of the other changes or some of the other surprises? Sure. A big one for me was when we first started asking when developers upgrade to, or at least attempt to upgrade to the latest Go release in production at work. For a lot of languages, there's a certain amount of lag time when a new uh, a new version of a language will ship before they actually adopt it. Java is a great case study of this where you still have a lot of people on Java 8 or Java 11. With Go, it was surprisingly fast, so much so that the first year, I think we asked about uh, like six-month time chunks, and almost everybody said that they upgrade to the latest release of Go for production uses within the first six months. So the next iteration of the survey, we actually broke that chunk down even uh, more granularly to try to get a sense of like, okay, do, do people just try to upgrade basically right away? And that seems to be the case uh, from the evidence that we have, usually within one point release or so, people start trying to upgrade to the latest major version, which is not behavior that you see for a lot of other programming languages. Another big one, and and Alice really alluded to this earlier, the very swift adoption of both VS Code and Goland by the community was something of a surprise to me. If you look at the older data, you can see Vim was kind of the premier editor for a long time, and there was a long tail of other editors. And then over the last couple of years, few years, I guess, both VS Code and Goland have just become uh, kind of co-dominant in that space where they, I think, account for something like 75 or 80 percent of all all survey respondents at this point between those two editors. Alice, anything else come to mind? 
I mean, I'm always surprised by just like how much love there is for Go, to be honest. Like, I mean, I, I used to work on Garrett, so maybe that like sort of colors my uh, my current perception. But, you know, and also the fact that our sample are, you know, these are people who are following the Go blog or like looking specifically for Go things. So it does sort of skew in that direction. But the satisfaction is higher than, you know, I'm used to seeing on uh some kinds of developer tools, right? So it seems like the there at least are some, you know, happy individuals who are happy to tell me about it more so than I've seen on in other products. So that's a really good point. Um, yeah. I, I, I had a similar reaction. Uh, the first time I worked on the survey was just how many people respond to it. And they do so out of the, the goal of making a better programming language, a better environment for the whole community. We have a lot of colleagues that when they run surveys, they have to really keep pushing people to respond to a survey. And I feel like we get this wealth of really rich and useful data simply by posting a blog about it. And the community is is very responsive. And that's just been a, a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. You mentioned the question about the velocity or the speed of the version update as something that surprised you and you kind of edited the questionnaire to focus on that more. Do you have some more examples of uh, interesting responses that you got from the community that made you change the structure of the survey? Yeah, so definitely that question, that's a good example of one that we were like, okay, we need kind of finer buckets here to understand what's actually going on. There are a few questions at the end that have changed over time that have to do with like diversity and, and inclusiveness and those have changed in response to things like GDPR and, and things like that. But they've also we've also changed them in, in response to how people have responded to them. I think there was one that we asked if they identified as female. I think that was changed to do you identify as a woman eventually. You know, we've done a lot of work on that question to make it more inclusive this year. And so like our in our current iteration, like we ask about different gender identities. So that's one example. And some there's some related questions there. Because people didn't feel either somebody didn't feel comfortable answering that question or didn't like, the you know, felt excluded in the way that it was worded. So that's one that we've, we've worked on a lot. Um, but then there's other like, another sort of suite of questions that has changed recently and how uh, people respond to what prevents them from using Go more. That's one that we've, you know, we've had to really examine because it's kind of like asking somebody, you know, if I served uh, strawberry ice cream, would you buy more ice cream from me? Like, would you come to my, and everyone's like, yeah, of course I would, because I love that flavor. And I definitely would go to your ice cream shop more. That's the, you know, the only thing preventing me from, getting buying more ice cream is the fact that you don't have this flavor, right? So it, it was kind of like that. And we're starting to change our approach. And, and now we ask some questions like that, just so we can get a better idea of what is actually preventing somebody from using Go or what has prevented somebody from using Go in the past. And so there's some things that have changed like in a little bit more subtler ways to kind of get at like, you know, don't just tell me what your favorite flavor of ice cream is. Like, I want to know like, what's actually going on here. More about that shopping experience. Yeah. To add on to that, one thing that has sort of changed on a lot of questions, or maybe this is more about our process in terms of how the survey evolves, when we don't have a great sense of what the community's response to a question is going to be, we tend to leave it pretty open-ended. 
And so those questions can be really hard to analyze. Sometimes you'll get people that don't provide a lot of context there, or we're trying to infer too much from what they tell us. And we have to read through every response and try to take some meaning out of that. And and we do that by basically going through in a huge spreadsheet and trying to assign categories or tags to each piece of feedback and looking for patterns in the way that those kind of uh, categories or tags build up. And then the next year, what we might do is take all of those categories that we identified, all of the themes in those open-ended responses, and create a question that is multiple choice and say, now select all of the ones that you identify with to try to kind of work backwards from the data that we collected one year and create an easier form of that question to answer, something that you know, takes less cognition on the part of, of a respondent to actually fill that out and is easier for us to analyze. But sometimes that doesn't always work that well. And to Alice's point, we, we definitely saw that with the things that were blocking Go adoption, that in working backwards, we ended up with a list that sort of it had a lot of holes in it, I guess. It didn't cover a lot of situations that we suddenly realized like, oh, these should be in here. And so that that question has continued to evolve over the last couple of years. Yeah. You can look through the various years and see like how it's changed over time. And sometimes the changes are, they're very subtle. And like every time we do this, I feel like I learn something new. I learn like, okay, Next time, let's do this instead. Let's ask it like this instead. And it's an iterative process. It's just like software development. Like you're not necessarily going to get it right the first time. It's important to have that constant improvement, I think, on like how, you know, what we're asking, how we're asking it. Is this still useful? Like every year when I'm doing this, I like, you know, start with what we asked last year and I have to say like, okay, what do we still need What should we throw away? What should we change? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Incident.io. Every software team on the planet has to manage incidents and a very large percentage of those teams are using Slack to communicate. That includes us. With Incident.io, you can create, manage, and resolve incidents directly inside Slack. Here's how it works. Head to Incident.io and sign up for free, then add it to your Slack. From there, you have a brand new incidents channel where all incidents get announced. Use the slash incident command to create and manage incidents. This command lets you share updates, assign roles, set important links, and more, all without ever leaving the incident channel. Each incident gets their own Slack channel plus a high-res dashboard at incident.io with the entire timeline from report to resolution. Get everyone on the same page from the moment they join the incident and help stakeholders stay in the loop. Add incident IO to your Slack today and prove yourself and your team that they have everything you need to streamline your incident management. Learn more and sign up for free at incident.io. No credit card required. Again, incident.io. A few episodes ago, to celebrate episode number 200, we had also a sort of a survey uh, to the listeners and asked all sorts of questions. And there was definitely one question that sounds uh, similar to that. It was phrased something like, what is a keyboard shortcut abbreviation that you're using? And the game was that. So we asked this question ahead and then a few hundreds, I think, people answered, maybe 100. And there were two teams. 
panelists trying to guess the answers. And when this question came, all the panelists were like, what does this mean? What is, give me one example. What is this question? I don't know. <laughs> I think Chris, actually, you, you got one of the questions right or one of the answers right when you said, was it like LOL or AFK or one of those? Yeah. <laughs> Right. In the context of, it's not in the context of going, that was definitely a confusing question. <laughs> That's a really good point too. Um, Alice can speak to this in more detail, but like one of the things that we typically do is pilot the survey each year or pilot test it with a couple of people uh, just to get in a, a sense of like, do these questions make sense? <laughs> is there something confusing here and see like how they would respond to those and whether those responses turn out to be something that we could then parse and, and would be useful to our analysis. Yeah. Um... Part of the go team, what we you know ask them to do is go through it and give us any you know feedback on wording, like what what makes sense, what doesn't. This year, we also had like a trusted tester from the community go through and be like, okay, is this is the question that I'm asking the thing that is understood right by the other person and getting feedback on on that, and that was like super useful. I would love to just like keep doing that on future iterations of the survey because that's it's so valuable. I mean, I'm not a Go developer, right? Like, I mean, I'm in the community, but I'm not having to use Go every day. And so, you know, what somebody else understands and what my understanding of, there may be like some mismatch there. And it's so useful to get that other perspective. Do you find information from other surveys or other developer surveys to be useful for you? For example, the Stack Overflow developer survey for 21 has been published. Is that something you read and you you learn from the questions, you learn from the answers? I do. I do. So I look at, you know, what's JetBrains doing? What's Stack Overflow doing? What is Rust doing? Like, what are the questions that they're asking their community? I mean, one, it does give you an idea for questions just in terms of like, oh, how should I word this? It can also give you ideas for like, oh, if I wanted to do this comparison with this community, then I should ask that question on my survey. And one, you can look at like the differences in the responses, but you can also, you know, look at, okay, how is my population like different from this population? And can we even make good comparisons? Yeah, we particularly do that with Stack Overflow, since that's such a large survey in, in the developer community. And we know it's not perfectly representative. No, no survey that's kind of uh, sampled in this way where you just publicly release the link and let people kind of take it as, as they want to is, is going to be uh, you know, randomly sampled. And thus, you never quite know if it's representative of the developer population. But since the Stack Overflow one is one of the, uh, the best that we have, we've added questions to the Go survey that we are basically similar to what's on the Stack Overflow one so that we can compare some of the demographics of who responds and get a sense of, well, is our sample basically skewed in some interesting way that is different from Stack Overflow and by comparison, you know, different from what we believe the larger developer community is like. That's interesting. Is there anything you learned that is... A that would characterize the Go community in such a comparison, or is it still in under construction? So thankfully, we learned that at least the questions that we were asking, uh, we didn't see any significant differences from the Stack Overflow uh, survey response population, which was a great sign for us that builds confidence that we are not hearing from sort of a, a skewed set of respondents. That's very interesting. And on that as well, I think the estimate of the Go community size is in like the couple millions, I think. And this is like, as you said, 10,000, which is not an insignificant number of people. And as you said, kind of not randomized in the ideal way that you might do it if you had more control over things. 
is there are there things you try to do to like correct for that? Is there like, you know, try to get more people to kind of take the survey? Or is it like, no, we kind of have a good enough sample of people here where we want to like kind of do what you said before, which is like ask more questions to fewer groups of people so you can get more coverage. Because that's always been something that's in that's been in my mind of like ten thousand people does, does not seem like a very good representation of uh, of you know millions of people. But I'm also not a UX researcher or a statistician, so that's a really good question. So to kind of answer it in two parts, first the the number of responses we get to the ghost survey are huge, and if it was randomly sampled, we would have very high confidence based on a sample of say ten thousand people responding. That's much larger than you would typically get for a survey like this. So that gives us a lot of power and a lot of confidence that the responses generalize. The problem we run into, as you you pointed out, it's not randomly sampled. And one of the things that we're doing this year to try to uh, get around that is introducing a prompt in our VS Code extension to randomly ask developers who are working with Go to take the survey that way on the idea that we are never entirely certain that people finding the survey link from the blog or from, you know, it'll probably get posted or shared on Reddit, on Twitter, Hacker News, all of these different sites. We don't know the audience of people that are looking at those sites, and we want to make sure that we're being as inclusive to everyone as possible. And so by prompting right in the IDE when we can, we're we're trying to get a more representative random sample. And so this year, we're going to be able to do a comparison of the people that found the survey through the IDE versus uh, took it from the one of the uh, the links that's posted on, say, the Go blog to see if there are substantial differences between those groups. Yeah, I guess I could talk more about that in terms of like representativeness. This is just one signal that we use. So this is not like uh, everybody's voting for what happens next in Go. This is one signal we use. It's funny when you asked about like surprises, you know, a lot of times if we're doing our jobs right, there shouldn't be surprises uh, because we're doing other research as well. And sometimes we are using the survey to sort of get a quantitative measure for something that we already found through other other kinds of research or other surveys. And this is a way to triangulate a hypothesis we're already you know, fairly confident in. And also in terms of representativeness, it's also, it's a sliding scale, really. Like it's probably more representative than something like the population of people who file bug reports, or at least it's a different sample. You know, like one thing that that I like seeing on the survey is actually only about, I think a third of respondents have ever contributed to Go or Go open source projects. And I actually really love seeing that because it shows like all the other people that we get to hear from that aren't necessarily commenting on, you know, pull requests or they're not necessarily like super involved in other things. Like it's so amazing to get to hear from people outside of that, that we wouldn't normally hear from. So I think in terms of representativeness, like obviously not perfect. It's, you know, always trying to get better, but it's nice to get more representation than we would otherwise. So you could say that you feel comfortable saying that some results that come up are pretty representative? Or would you say that because of the sample group or like the subsections and so on, it tries to provide kind of insights about smaller scopes? I think it's safe to say that everything that we publish on the blog, we're very confident in. That's a fair statement. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good question. 
And to kind of dive in into that a little bit more, uh, this is, you know, Alice was just talking about this. The idea that if we see an interesting signal in like a set of developer interviews that we're doing or a usability study on some other part of the Go ecosystem, if we see something surprising there, we'll try to validate it at a wider scale on the annual survey. And so it may not be like something that we're thinking of as a surprise anymore because we've already been surprised. And that's why we're kind of trying to triangulate with a different data source or we're trying to, you know, in some way validate this hypothesis that we've formed. It's relatively rare, I think, in surveys in general to ask questions that you don't already have a pretty good idea what the answer is going to be. You're, you're looking to validate the hypothesis that you formed doing other forms of research, and you're looking to see changes in a community over time, you know, trends changing over time, the types of things people are building and things like that. And we also have a number of just health metrics, really, in the survey that we want to track over time. So does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That also makes a lot of sense. As someone that's taken the survey in the past, I've seen all of like the multiple choice and single choice questions, but there's also a lot of text boxes and kind of free form text fields. How are those kind of dealt with in process, right? Because people can put like anything in there. So I imagine it's like a little bit more difficult to, to grok things. But, you know, how useful have you found that information in the past? Is that maybe a source where some of the surprising information comes from? Yeah, actually, yeah, Todd touched on this earlier. He explained uh, the sort of the coding process. This, I think, used to be done, I think they just did a tag cloud or a word cloud, I think, was how it, it, it was before they um, brought us on to the project. So now a human actually goes and reads reads your responses. So if you wrote something mean or nasty, I, I read it. <laughs> like and yes people do read them because I've, I've also seen comments of like nobody cares about this and I'm like oh Alice cares <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so people I mean so I do I do read um I do read what people have written and and, and other folks read them too I, I share them with people who might have a vested interest in that particular question to go and read the the open text responses and they're all coded and I don't know if Todd wants to talk specifically about any particular one that was super insightful or? The most useful ones I feel like to me have been when we're asking questions around like, what are your biggest challenges with the ecosystem? Yeah. The well-formed questions. And we don't always know what's going to be a well-formed question when we first start drafting it. <laughs> it's something that we tend to learn yeah. uh, through this very iterative process. But they, like, like Alice was saying, it is a lot of effort to go through those. And so we try not to ask too many open-ended questions. I think last year we we had more of them on the survey than we ended up being comfortable with. And so we're trying to reduce that. There, You should see a lot fewer of them this year. Part of that was also, I think, just a factor of using that sort of modularized survey design where any single individual probably didn't see lots of open-ended questions, or at least we hope that they didn't. But we saw lots of them as we were analyzing it because there, there were a lot of them in the pool of questions that could have randomly been asked of, of any given participant. And so trying to scope that down has been a big effort for this year because those questions, they, they take a lot of effort to analyze. And again, you, you don't have a lot of great context there. Those are questions that we much prefer to ask in more like one-on-one -on -one interviews or focus group type settings where we can dig deep and try to understand like, okay, why do you say that and get more context around? It. Yeah. If we could just ask one or two open text questions a year, that would be, I would love to get it down to something like that. <laughs> yeah. 
that said, it's inevitable that it's like we're putting together a draft of the survey and realize like this is a really important question that, you know, one of the teams needs an answer to. We have no idea what the responses are going to be. We can't write a mm-hmm. closed form with, you know, a set of multiple choice responses to select from. Yeah. It's going to have to be open text. One thing I'd like to do this year um, in the analysis phase is actually incorporate more of the team into that process to get familiar with and or contribute to kind of the code book that we are using to, you know, classify responses. I feel like that could be, I mean, useful for me to have some help, but also I think useful for the team as well to sort of be able to internalize some of those findings. So, you know, if they're triaging bugs or whatever, they have like some more context other than the, well, this is just a one-off bug. Like they have like, well, you know, about like 20% of people on the survey who answered that question, we're talking about this. So now I have that additional, you know, context. So I would love to get more of the team involved this year. That's a really good point. Yeah. It definitely helps me as well when we have engineers that can, they might have a better hypothesis as to what somebody means than, than I might or Alice might as, as we're looking at those responses. So yeah, big plus one to that. And on that, something that just kind of occurred to me too is that you know, the Go language is developed by, I think it's now more, more people outside of Google are contributing to the language than the number of people inside Google on the Go team. But I wonder if there's um, kind of any community involvement for like the kind of analysis of the survey. I know you mentioned earlier how you've had like someone trusted in the community that helped you or helped screen the survey to be like, are these questions, you know, the right type of questions to be asking? Are there any plans to like kind of, I guess, ramp up more involvement of the community instead of it just kind of being the Go team at Google? I would love for that to happen. I've sort of just gotten some ideas just like this year. You know, this is only my second time running it. So I I imagine it will get better over time. But I have gotten some ideas of what if we publish the data? You know, like what if we make the the data available? Somebody's asked me about that. There's lots of hoops for me to jump through to make that happen. But I would love for that to happen. Would love to have maybe a section on like our methodology, like behind why we ask each of these questions. Right now, there's not really a feedback mechanism on the survey itself. That's kind of like a meta question of like, give us feedback on the survey. Like that would be a thing I would love to see happen in the future because, you know, one thing that we use to determine like what we ask is, well, what's going to be useful to the community? And so that's, you know, something that we want to be mindful of is what does the community want to know or, you know, or what does the community think of the survey in general? And so, yeah, I would love to get more of that in the future for sure. Absolutely agreed. One little wrinkle there is that we've, we've looked into sharing this data and we think that, as Alice said, there are a lot of hoops for us to jump through to make this happen, but we're, we're trying. We can share the data for the closed form questions, but the open text questions are kind of off limits because the data that's in there is so potentially rich and it can reveal who wrote it inadvertently based on what they were talking about. They may not realize that it is self-identifying, but it can very easily be. And so to preserve, uh, really protect everybody's privacy, that particular data, I don't think we would be able to release, but the closed yeah. form questions, we'd love to be able to do that with. And that is something that we're trying to push towards. The tags, as you mentioned, can be an interesting thing to publish as well. Right, the categories that you put the open answers into. Ooh, I like that. It can be like a meta way. The codes. I mean, those are technically shown in the results, but yeah, there's it's less, uh, but we don't really share the process of how we did it, which could be a thing to explore doing. 
I like that idea. Just a, a question about the the open text boxes. I don't I don't know if you answered it. And the last time we talked about this, but how many people actually fill out those text boxes? Is it like a huge percentage or is it like kind of a small percentage of people that are like passionate and vocal? Well, it depends on how many people see that question. And actually, I'd have to go. There are some questions where more I think more people respond um, than others. Like I think also depends on where it appears in the survey for them. You know, did they see it earlier? They might be more inclined to answer it. So I would have to go and like compare the response rates for each open text question, which I have not done. A lot of times we get plenty of responses, you know, like sometimes there's there's thousands. Yeah, I've, I've seen up to 2,000, I think, for yeah. particularly for questions like, what is your biggest challenge using Go? There are some sort of critical ones, I think, the community does tend to spend some time answering. And that's like 2,000 responses out of a year when I think we had 11,000 respondents overall. So that's a pretty good response rate for an open text question, honestly. Yeah. As you're sort of hinting at, typically, those are the questions that are going to be least likely to be answered on a survey because they take the most cognitive effort. Yeah. And I mean, feel free to skip them. No question on the survey is like mandatory. Like if you don't want to respond to a question, but you still want to give us some data, answer the five or 10 questions you want to answer. And that's better than not participating at all. So like you can determine how, you know, how much you want to invest in it. If you want to answer everything in perfect detail and go through everything very slowly, like you can, but you can also just fill out a couple of pages and be like, yeah, I'm done. And this year's survey is about to come out soon. Uh, yeah. So it launched today. So you can now go take it. So if you're still listening, go, uh, you can find it, the link through the Go blog. Um, you can find it on Twitter and you can just go write, go take it. <laughs> How long does the survey typically stay open for? I think about three weeks. I think that's what we've been doing the last. Okay. Is that is that? Yeah, that's it's been three weeks for the last few years now. I think. Yeah. Okay. So for our listeners that are listening to the recorded version of this podcast, yes, you only got a couple of weeks left to go. So we'll have a link to it <laughs> in the show notes. So yeah. as soon as you're done listening to this, go go take the survey. Yeah. I think it closes November sixteenth. Is that right? Is that a Tuesday? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, and the link is go.dev slash blog. That's where we have the official post up for it. We'll add that in the show notes. Yes. <laughs> so everybody who's watching can get that. If you miss this year, which hopefully you, you know, you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I'm going to go do this right now. But, you know, if it's if it's after November 16th, we are thinking about doing the survey a little bit more often next year. We might have two. So we might need to change the name of the survey from the annual Go developer survey to something a little more general or maybe go developer survey springtime edition or, you know, something like that. Add versions to that. It's going to be funny. <laughs> Just like go version. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, given the uh, the release of generics coming up soon, we, we really <laughs> wanted to get a, a pulse of the survey out after that had shipped without needing to wait until the following fall. Maybe you can even have that match the current Go version. Ooh. And then maybe you'll skip your, like, it will not be consecutive in the, in the version of the survey, but it will be good timestamp. Just comes out with the release. Yeah. If we're doing one in fall and one in spring, they'll always, assuming we keep the same release schedule for Go itself, it'll always be sort of uh, versioned to a most recent major Go release. 
Yeah, maybe we could, like we could ship it with the release. Oh, by the way, and also take our survey since you're so happy about your new <laughs> Go version. <laughs> Big cool thing to build into the Go command too, of like Go survey and just like take you there so you could take it. And oh, that's a really good comment. <laughs> <laughs> I want someone to build this for me. <laughs> Anybody's listening and you want to make your contribution this Hacktoberfest? I want to my own personal data engineer. <laughs> you also mentioned earlier that uh, people are going to get it through the VS Code extension as a randomized thing. Are there any plans to do it through like the other integrations? Because I mean, there's plugins for most of the other editors, uh, and it seems like you could do basically the same thing in like Vim or GoLand or Emacs or whatever. Or is that just like just try VS Code this year, see how it goes, and kind of revisit it for the next one? It's, it's the latter of what you described. This is a pilot, so we'll see what the data looks like. It's entirely possible that we'll realize there is basically no difference in the audience of people that find the survey through the blog links versus who get prompted from the uh, code editor. Other than their editor of preference, probably. Spot on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. we, we know what we'll see there. Yeah, there are some things that we can expect to be different, right? Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. But we'll see. And if it goes well, then yeah, it's, it's definitely an option that we could try rolling this out to different editors as well, or different sort of touch points or tools in the Go community. And this year, this is the first time we're announcing it on GoTime. So yep. hopefully we've reached a whole other level of representativeness of GoTime listeners. Absolutely. <laughs> hopefully they are they are different enough from our previous sample of Go blog readers. <laughs> Speaking of those uh, personality or persona samples, do you have kind of way to describe how the persona was changing in the last one, two years? That's a really good question. It makes sense that you haven't seen much of a change because it hasn't been that pronounced in the last couple years. But prior to that, there was a really strong difference. I, you still see it if you look at the um, like the experience that someone is using with Go versus which other languages they're familiar with and prefer to use. There is a very strong shift from a lot of respondents being very familiar with C and C++ early on in Go's history, and that has shifted more towards uh, you see JavaScript and uh, TypeScript and PHP and Ruby come up much more prevalently after that. Python seems to be sort of like the great uniter. Like it doesn't matter how experienced or how long you've been in the Go ecosystem. Everyone has about the same level of experience with Python, it seems, which is interesting. But I think that does tell us like the, the types of things that people were building uh, has sort of shifted over time and their experiences, their expectations have shifted over time because they're coming from different programming ecosystems. Yeah, I have noticed the editor usage that I've noticed has shifted over time. And that's like, we saw this kind of surge in, you know, like VS Code and GoLand or IntelliJ kind of usage that seems to, but even that has, seems to have like kind of leveled off. And just from, I think from like 2019 to 2020, I don't think there were a lot of changes there, but I had noticed it previous to that. But yeah, I'm looking forward to, to, you know, to seeing if we have any, any shifts this year, especially with kind of the introduction of the random sampling through VS Code. So maybe we'll find something interesting. I'm curious if you have any question about uh, Codex and something uh, along those lines of like automated generation of code. 
question like, are you worried that the AI will write better Go code than you? Oh, <laughs> oh that's interesting. <laughs> we don't have a question on that this year, do we? No, we don't. I was like, is that a concern that we should be uh, that we should be tracking? <laughs> this is my very personal interest. So existential dread. Uh- <laughs> I have seen a couple articles pop up around like low code or no code and like, oh, you're going to get replaced with uh, with a machine or a robot. Although I've worked in many large companies and I've seen how many people spend their days filling out spreadsheets. So I don't really know how much it's going to be like <laughs> they're coming for our jobs, but it'd be definitely interesting to see what kind of sentiment or concern the community has around that sort of thing. Okay. Maybe a future question. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Honeycomb is built on the belief that there's a more efficient way to understand exactly what is happening in production right now. When production is running slow, it's hard to know exactly where problems originate. Is it your application code, your users, or the underlying systems? Teams who don't use Honeycomb scroll through endless dashboards guessing at what they mean. They deal with alert floods, guessing which ones matter, and go from tool to tool to tool, guessing at how the puzzle pieces all fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that is slowly killing your teams and your business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. Honeycomb quickly shows you the correct source of issues, discover hidden problems, even in the most complex stacks, understand why your app feels slow to only some users. With Honeycomb, you guess less and know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. And by our friends at Linode, cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern apps faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. You can get started today for free with $100 in credit at linode.com slash gotime. Linode has data centers all around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. Choose the data center that makes the most sense to you, close to you, whatever. You have access to 20 24-7, 365, human support with no tiers or handoffs. Regardless of your plan size, you can choose shared or dedicated compute instances, or you can use that credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and so much more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Head to linode.com slash gotime. Again, click on the free account button, get that credit, get started today. Once again, linode.com slash gotime. You mentioned earlier, too, that, you know, the the Go survey, this annual survey, soon to hopefully be semi-annual. Is that the word? Biannual, semi-annual. One of of the two. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Diannual. So you have other surveys that you do. Um, Can you kind of, like, get into, like, what some of those are or where people might be able to see and find them and participate? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think Todd would has lots to say about that. <laughs> Thanks. I do. <laughs> so we, we do have a lot of other surveys for different parts of the Go ecosystem. And one of the big advantages or one of the big changes from those uh, as compared to the Go, the annual developer survey, is the fact that they're randomly sampled. And so these are the little surveys that 
are popping up on the bottom of like pkg.go.dev or go.dev itself or inside of the VS Code editor when you're using a Go plugin, you might get a prompt. They're intentionally randomized, so it's not like it's the sort of thing that people can go and take. The idea is to try to catch a representative sample of people and get their feedback at different points in the development experience, essentially. One of the things that if you add a button to a a system that says, you know, click here to provide feedback, you know right off the bat that you're going to get feedback from people who are very frustrated and very excited. And you're not going to hear quite so much from people who are having just a normal day-to-day experience. And so by prompting randomly at different times for different respondents, we try to ameliorate that bias a little bit and get a more representative sample of data. But for anyone who has seen those surveys pop up on any of the the, uh, the Go websites or, uh, or code editors, that's the reason that you're seeing them. And that's what we're trying to do with that data is, is get a better understanding of how the tools are working for people in their day-to-day experience. And humans read what you say. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so if you're out there and see a little pop-up on, on package.go.dev or any of that, like... People are actually going to read it. So go go fill out. Tell tell everybody how you feel about things. Tell Alice and Todd. There are people <laughs> listening to you. Yeah. It's not, not some just weird, uh, you know, AI that's going to crunch the numbers or something like that. Yeah. It doesn't create a tag cloud or a wood cloud. <laughs> we did try a machine learning approach and it did not work well. So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's all human analyzed. Aside from the surveys, I think we do run other kinds of research and Todd, you will know more about this. Is there a way that people can sign up specifically for our developer surveys? Thank you, Alice. That is an awesome question. I know this sounds scripted, but it's not. Um, I don't think I've I've shared this. (laughs) We are in the process of launching a direct uh, sign-up form to participate in research studies around Go. It should be launching, it's already October 26th. The goal was to get it out by the end of the month. We may still hit that. It's in its final revisions right now with another team at Google. Um, but yes, we, we are going to be getting that launched. And then we'll have sign-up links on some of the Go websites themselves. We'll probably advertise this more broadly on other places where developers gather like uh, Stack Overflow and things like that to try to get more people signed up in the pool of, uh, of respondents that we reach out to when we're running you know, interview studies or things like that. Maybe we can add those to the show notes. Absolutely. (laughs) Once we get the links, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just so desperate for people to talk to me. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that we've done with a great amount of success is just put out a a call on Twitter or something like that, social media in general, and ask for Go developers that way. And we've had great sign-up responses for that. Awesome. So the survey is happening over the next three weeks. When can people expect the results of that survey to kind of come out? Oh, that's always the big question, isn't it? I think last year we got them out in March. And so obviously I don't want to get them out any later than March. I would love to get them out like in February or like January, ideally. So we'll see how that goes. Depends on how much vacation time Alice needs to take between, you know, (laughs) now and then. As we hope you have long and good vacation. You shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, you should focus on that. It's, it's especially important now. <laughs> we're all curious, but we also want to have meaningful uh, everything around that. Yeah. <laughs> vacation is super, super important. So, all right. And with that, we will go into our final segment of the show. I actually think you should probably leave.
right. So if you don't know how this works, this is just a segment where you get to voice an opinion you think is unpopular. It does not have to be related to Go or tech. It can just be anything. Uh, and then we're going to throw them up on Twitter and see if you uh, actually are unpopular or not. And if it's not unpopular, you have to come back and give another one until uh, you actually get one that's unpopular. I like the validation. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Todd, do you have an unpopular opinion? I am not sure if this is popular or not yet, but I think it's unpopular. I am excited for the notch on the new MacBooks. Granted, like if you could put a camera in there and not have the notch at all, that would be even better. But I am very excited at the idea of getting a little bit more screen real estate that is devoted basically to status indicators and menu bars. And if you can get that extra screen real estate, I don't see why you wouldn't do it. Now, I'm saying this having not used any of these computers, and I know they're just coming out right now, so maybe the first time I end up using one, I will absolutely despise it and will justly get a lot of grief for this opinion. But my first take on them so far has been I'm actually excited for the notch. Mm. If it's like anything like the iPhone 10, it would be massively unpopular to begin with, and then people will use it, and then they'll be like, oh, this is fine, and then all the other people making fun of it. We'll see notches in, in tons of laptops in the, in the future. Oh, smaller bezels. That's what we can get with that. Exactly. I, don't, I feel like that's going to be like a 50-50 maybe. I don't know. I'm feeling you might get right in the middle. Alice, do you have an unpopular opinion? I have so many unpopular opinions. I just <laughs> I I feel like I'm trying to balance between like – don't get fired and share an unpopular opinion. <laughs> you, you, you can know? also give more than one if you'd like. It doesn't yeah. have to be a single unpopular, be multiple unpopular opinions. Because, I mean, I think, like, if I want, I like, I could just say something, you know, outrageous that nobody's um, going to agree with. Or, you know, or I could get on a soapbox and, and preach about something I believe in. I'm going to go with something that I think is probably unpopular and it's not work related. So I'm off the hook there. I'm going to say that Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson is a terrible novel. <laughs> I don't know that one. It's a very, very popular sci-fi novel that ha it gets like tossed around as an inspiration for a lot of things. And I, I just, it's not unreadable, but it's almost. So I think that might be like my, my safe pop unpopular opinion, because I think it's, I don't think I'm going to start any wars over it, but also it's probably un not popular. Like it seems like people really love that book and I just don't. If I wanted to be even more contentious, like I might say something about Harry Potter, but <laughs> I've actually, I've never read, no, this is funny. I've never read any Harry Potter. So and that's like, that's kind of a shocking thing. Like if I am playing, you know, never have I ever, I win with that one every time. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how other, how other people are feeling about Snow Crash. All right. I haven't read it in a very long time, but I remember loving it, but yeah. it's been a long, <laughs> long time. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, I could talk about why I, I, you know, I don't like it, but I, I think I'll just let it stand as is. I don't feel like it, I need any justification. In fact, I, I invite all, like, I want it to be like super unpopular. Like I'm trying to win here. <laughs> I have played that game before and I have won that game before. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, we put out on Twitter a, a couple of tweets about like who's had the most popular unpopular opinions. So people are like, no, that's popular. Yeah. And who's had the most unpopular unpopular opinions. And I think I got like both first and second place for like the most unpopular unpopular opinion. So Amazing. Well, I'm curious now I have to know what was your unpopular unpopular opinion? I think I actually talked about it a couple of podcasts ago, but I think the one that was like 
the most unpopular and popular was I said that uh, calling Go Golang is a respect problem and that it can lead to other things in our community. I think the, the thing that really pushed people over the edge was that I said like it can lead to other things like, you know, dead naming or misuse of pronouns because not using a correct name is not using a correct name. And it was very, very unpopular. Wow. Which it was, you know, I kind of knew it was going to be unpopular by saying it, but it's one of those things where I was still inside. I was like, oh, this shouldn't be unpopular, but it's okay. And I always had the context too, like, you know, hashtags for Golang, whatever, Google for Golang, whatever. Like, don't put it on the cover of a book or something like that. Like the, the language's name is Go. But that was, that was my big unpopular opinion that I still kind of, stand and I'm like, this should not be unpopular. So based on the way you explained it, I agree. That should not be unpopular. Now I gotta know how do you pronounce like the the language server? <laughs> I mean they told us it's go please. So okay. I feel like that's how is that canon? Like is that's like the official I feel like it's as much canon as like go fumped and the other other things that we have. <laughs> Weird random pronunciations for things. Like, you know I'm a longtime listener, first time caller here. When I joined the Go team, started listening to this podcast. And this is how I learned how to pronounce anything is like through this show. We're happy to be of service. Yeah. I'm glad I, I was using an authoritative source here. We at least try to, you know, pronounce things the way that I guess the Go team intended, or the Go creators intended. GoFumped is always one that people, it's all, people say Go Format, some people say Go FMT. It's kind of like the same thing with like uh, Cube Cuddle and how some people are like, mm. it's Cube CTL or it's Cube Control. and Cubectal. Yeah, there's all, all <laughs> sorts of, I think I heard one um, for CoreOS, someone called it Choreos. Because <laughs> if you take the C off, it's Oreos, so they called it Choreos. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, we we just we just do this to ourselves. We really do. Yeah, I, I appreciate hearing the diversity of pronunciations because if I'm talking to somebody one on one, like a, a Go developer, and they're throwing you know proper names out there that I may or may not be familiar with, it's useful to be familiar with various pronunciations of things. So like, ah, okay, so that's how you say it. That's how I'm going to say it for the sake of our conversation here. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I think for some things, it's just like, I don't know, as long as we can understand each other, it's it's fine. Yeah. As long as you don't say Golang. That's my big no-no. <laughs> don't, don't do that. But anything else, I'm like, sure, it's fine. Whatever. You can do what you like. Do as you like. There's not an official pronunciation. I wonder if you can turn those into a dialect. Kind of if somebody bothers and says cube control, the whole thing. So you kind of would assume that they are very thorough with other, like with their code or test coverage. They're long form. Yeah. <laughs> they write iterator instead of I. Uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or index, you know. They want to be very, very explicit. Very verbose. A high level of verbosity. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Probably a Java developer in a, in a previous engineering life. <laughs> <laughs> Hot opinion. That'd be an interesting behavioral experiment for sure. I think we've talked about it a few times on the podcast before about how people can kind of come in and they just, you know, oh, you're still writing Java or Ruby or Python. It's just Go syntax and it compiles and Go. But like this code is definitely still Java, you code. Yeah. It's one of the one of the nice things about Go. It's super easy to learn. One of the tough things about Go is it's super hard to master. And so people just kind of come in and they're like, 
boom. Mm. Yeah, so maybe that's more insight. We can, like, how many people actually are coming from, like, Java? Is it proportional to the number of code bases I've seen that are, you know, there's a Java-esque go? And if not, those people should take the survey so we can. Yeah, actually, we do, um, we do see, like, a large proportion of people who come to Go are coming from, you know, like Java and Python. I mean, that's that's not super surprising because there are so many Java and Python developers, but but also you don't see as many from, you know, say like C++ or something where, you know, you might expect that because there are so many C++ developers, right? So we do see kind of this, um, you know, there are certain, certain populations that are more likely to migrate to, to Go. That's interesting. Yeah. And as you said, I know you've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's a common thing we hear from developers uh, working in industry that when they first introduce Go to a new organization, there is a tendency to keep writing it as if it was the last language they had been working with predominantly. And that like, it's actually a bit of a barrier internally. And they try to come up with their own sort of best practices typically and try to figure out how do we get people to kind of map their mental models from, say, Python over to Go for different types of development. I think that'd be a good study to do. <laughs> I'd be very curious to compare that for the different languages with going back to AI-generated code. <laughs> and I'm super focused on that because that's my talk at GopherCon this year. Ooh. So everything I'm, it's like connects to that in my mind in some way. Awesome. It's like an AI is writing Go and the comparison between what a human would write and what's written by the AI. This is not going to be in this talk, but I was just... Now then we talked about how people write Java, but in Go. So to mm. compare this, like Go that comes from other languages with the one that came from the AI to see if it has any flavor. Who can write better Go? An AI or a Java dev? <laughs> or what the underlying language would be from that AI generated one? Like, is it subtrained on something else? Or this will also be interesting one day. Yeah, is it idiomatic Go that it's writing, or does it look like they're writing Java, but with Go syntax? Oh, could you get an AI to write Go and Java syntax, or write Java with Go syntax? Or could we fix it if it did that? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, there's definitely some code bases I'd love to run, like a Go, like an AI that could just change things into idiomatic Go, and like, ah, here's some very popular code bases that you should go Go rewrite yeah. to make better. <laughs> we do have one kind of, I guess, like after hours question from our Slack channel, if you two oh. are up for uh, answering it. Sure. They asked about if there's any or what attempts are made to account for uh, dark matter developers. And I guess the quick synopsis of them is they're, they're kind of like dark matter in the universe where like we know they exist, but we can't like reach them as much. So like develop like the massive developers that you know, are on, you know, mailing lists, are on social media, don't go to conferences. You know, there's that common thing where, like, good, like, 80% of people, 90% of people that attend conferences are first-time conference attendees at, like, every single conference. So there's obviously this big pool of people that have never interacted with stuff before. So is there, are there things that you do to kind of account for that group of people? That is a really great question. I think the stuff we were talking earlier about trying to kind of randomly prompt people using the tools that they're working with, as opposed to reaching out in some other way, that goes a long way towards finding that group of developers that, that we wouldn't expect to answer our surveys from, you know, blogs or Twitter or things like that. We don't really have much logs data in, in with Go. We don't know what people are doing on their own computers and things like that. And so by prompting instead in an IDE and hoping that they'll, you know, take that survey, that's 
at this point, kind of the, the furthest that we've gone in trying to uh, get some feedback from that group, but it is an open question as to how many people even respond to those prompts. We don't even have telemetry telling us the non-response rate for when we prompt in VS Code and people just close the dialogue and don't answer. So yeah, it's a good question and it's one that we're still actively working on. Yeah, just trying all the different channels we can. I mean, sometimes personal networks are also a way to do it, right? So like, I actually know some Go developers in real life make friends Hey, and tell everyone at work to take the survey. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is a potential thing of research in the future, maybe trying to add more anonymous collection of, of information when people are like running Go commands or whatever, just to kind of see what people are actually doing? Or is that kind of like, uh, we don't want to step into that area? Yeah, no, that, that that's not on the table, right? Um, we would never do that without explicitly making that very clear that that's what we were doing and exactly what we would do with that data. And, you know, that is not a thing that we would just be like, hey, let's just kind of see what people, you know, we, we would never. Um. There was one thing we had thought about doing this year, which was asking people to run a diagnostic tool and, and giving us the mm. what came out of that. It didn't end up happening. But, you know, like I could see us maybe in the future doing something like that if it was, not, you know, if we really needed people to do that. But we would tell them exactly, you know, this is exactly right. what the tool is going to do. This is exactly where the put it in this box. And, you know, we'll share the results. Like it would be very, very explicit if we were doing anything like that. Right. Yeah, I know, I know yeah. Steam does that sort of thing with, uh, they do like a hardware survey. I've gotten it a few times. We're like, oh, let's just tell us about like, you know, what's your GPU? What computer are you using? It helps us kind of figure out where our users are going. So I think that would be, that would definitely be a cool thing if it was like more, definitely explicit. Yeah. I'd be super interested in knowing like, you know, what, what machines are people writing Go on? Like how are they <laughs> deploying it? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's something that we ask on the survey, but again, it would be cool to see that like from maybe some of those dark matter, dark matter. I've never heard them referred to as dark matter, but yeah, like the dark matter developers. <laughs> it's a new term to me too. And I, I like it. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah. Thanks, uh, Damien, in the chat for that. I'm going to add that to the show notes as well. Where are they hanging out? I got to I gotta meet these people. I think the point <laughs> is they're not hanging out anywhere. I mean, they're, they're the, like the nine to five. Like I just, you know, I have exactly. something else that brings me yeah. joy in life. This is just my paycheck. Probably working at some big co somewhere. And it's just like, no, nah, I just do my work. I just go in, right? Go, go home. I like playing video games or raising my mm -hmm. family or whatever it is. So. I've definitely met a number of those, you know, developers in the past. And I'm like, you should come get involved and stuff. I'm like, busy with all this other stuff. It's like, oh. yeah. All right. Natalie, do you have an unpopular opinion you want to share before we close out the show? Yes. I spent the last two weeks, three weeks, maybe having a cold. And I would like more people to say bless you every time I sneeze. I'm a person who sneezes many times. I don't do one sneeze. I do like five sneezes in a row. And I think it would be very nice to hear five times bless you. <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's probably pretty unpopular. I think most people, I think most people are good with just like the one or even just zero. You know? Yes. Yes. So you want people to count how many times you sneeze, so then yeah. make sure they say like "gesundheit" or "bless you" after every one. <laughs> do you do this for other people? No, one by one. Okay. I do take breaks between sneezes, so there's enough time to say. Eh. I, I'm considerate. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but you give them a pause of silence, you know, an expectation for the, exactly. the "bless you" before you go into your next sneeze. I see. Okay. 
trying to establish some eye contact. It's like, hello. Yeah. Meaningfully stare at them until they, yeah, say it. <laughs> but the question is, would you hold the sneeze in until they've said no. it? And then it's like a... Like a <laughs> no. If I have to hold a sneeze or if I have to skip a sneeze, I will also hold grudge. This will, this will not go anywhere good. <laughs> I really like sneezing. <laughs> I think that's an unpopular opinion right there, Natalie. I don't think anybody loves sneezing. Like, or mo most people like sneezing. Well, you know, in COVID days, that's absolutely unpopular. You're, that's 100% true. Yeah, don't sneeze on public transit either. People will be real mad at you. <laughs> well, you should have a mask anyway. Uh, this is Germany. I think this, the mandate is still here, but I lost track which country has what mandate. In the US, we still have a mandate for public transportation masks. But anyway, that was a very fun way to, to close up the show. Thank you all for taking a listen. And thank you, Todd and Alice, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Natalie, for being my wonderful co-host. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris and Natalie. This was really great. That is our show for this week. Thanks for listening. Coming soon to a GoTime episode near you, Hacking with Go, Maintenance in the Open, AI-Driven Development, and the Art of the PR. Fix your FOMO and subscribe now at GoTime.fm. Oh, and do us a favor. If you dig GoTime, pay it forward by telling a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the number one way people hear about us, and we'd love to have them as a listener. GoTime is produced by Jared Santo with music by our beat freak in residence, Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by some awesome partners. Special thanks to Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. That's all for this week. We'll talk to you again next time on GoTime. who the composer is wait i have that on slack i was talking about that with jared yeah i know matt did the unpopular opinion one but i don't mm. know who did our intro and outro i think it is said at the end of every podcast and i've heard it before i feel like maybe it's a breakmaster cylinder i feel like that's mm. yes yes that's them okay wow that just like came out of my just right off the tongue <laughs> breakmaster cylinder there we go nice. like, that was also not scripted <laughs> i guess if you hear it enough it kind of just you know like subliminally you know almost you know it's in there right yeah <laughs> <laughs>